0: Good morning. We are now 40 days away from the, the wonderful world of SEC football returning. And I know you're looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to that, that day in 40 days. As always, it's good to be with you. We want this to be a productive week, and our staff is here, and they all have name badges on. You can tell who they are to try and assist you in any way needed. That excludes me as I try to answer your questions, however, sometimes I'm not always, always helpful. In addition to the opportunities you have this week to visit with our head football coaches, we have 42 student athletes, nine of whom are quarterbacks. That includes the starting quarterback from the Orange Bowl in the College Football National Championship game last year, the starting quarterback from the Peach Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, and the Fiesta Bowl, along with 33 of their colleagues. We want to thank our coaches and our athletics programs for making sure we have here today the young men with whom you want to speak and visit through the week. I know there's interest in where we conduct media days next year, so I'm pleased to announce that will be in Las Vegas. Oh, I'm kidding. That's where our new bowl game is. Just wanted to make sure people are paying attention. I think some of you may need massages after I watch your necks snap up. We are happy to have the Las Vegas Bowl in our inventory beginning in 2020. Next year, after the success in Atlanta last year, we will return to Atlanta for Football Media Days. We will use the Chick-fil-A College Football Hall of Fame once again as our base. Media Days will stay on the move in 2021. And we will go to the Music City and enjoy the new Grand Hyatt Nashville for media days. We appreciate the hospitality here in Hoover and at the Winfrey this week, and we look forward to the new opportunities in the future. The season ahead includes a celebration of college football's 150th anniversary. The SEC will be a part of that, like everyone else, as our football student athletes display commemorative patches upon their uniforms. The league will also, through its athletics communications directors, celebrate 150 of the finest moments of SEC football. Those will not be selected by the commissioner, so if someone gets angry about whether or not a moment is part of the 150th best, it won't be me. We will be, however, releasing those moments and announcing them through social media and over the SEC network throughout the season. We made history back in 2014. As Disney CEO Bob Iger said, we launched the most successful channel in the history of cable television. It's a Joe DiMaggio-like standard, one that we expect will stand the test of time. On August 14th, the SEC Network will celebrate a hard to believe fifth anniversary already. That's a tribute to the passion of our fans the commitment and the hard work of the personnel on our university campuses, their support, student athletes that comprise our teams, and the hard work and dedication of the team at ESPN. We look forward to continuing to innovate and serve sports fans uniquely through an authentic SEC experience, and we want to stand second to none among all of our peers. On Tuesday, you're going to hear more about the SEC Network, both our programming plans for 2019, and how we celebrate this fifth anniversary when Chris Turner, ESPN's Vice President for Day-to-Day Operations of the Network, joins you in this room. Tonight there's a special program, something we call Homecoming. It's our fourth episode, hosted by Paul Feinbaum. Tonight's feature at 7 Eastern, 6 Central is on Titus O'Neil. If you're not familiar with Titus, that's his ring name in WWE. He was known as Thaddeus Bullard during his playing days at Florida. All of the stories we've told on Homecoming that Paul has been a part of helping us tell have been interesting stories. The story of Titus or Thaddeus is absolutely remarkable, and I encourage people to tune in at 7 tonight. As part of the effort to stand out from our peers, we've been working for over two years with the folks from ESPN Films, the SEC Story Program, and this year on the SEC Network, we will debut Saturdays in the South, a history of SEC football for 90 minutes every Tuesday, beginning at 9 Eastern. This eight-part series will first take us back to the late 1800s, You will hear stories of greased railroad tracks, an era before the SEC chant was ever heard, and will weave tales through the decades to the modern era of success experienced now by the Southeastern Conference. Tomorrow, in this room, we will have three of the SEC's legendary figures here to visit with you, Archie Manning, Herschel Walker, and Steve Spurrier. Archie, Steve, and Herschel will also join us later Tuesday evening, and along with many of you downtown in the Lyric Theater, for a special premiere of portions of Saturday in the South. This will become, I am certain, because it's a high-quality production, appointment viewing every week on Tuesday evenings, not only for SEC football fans, but for college football fans. We leave now history behind because we're mindful of the changes happening around college athletics every day. Those changes often affect the Southeastern Conference, given our position. And legalized sports gambling and its accessibility is one of those changes confronting us all. The SEC presidents and chancellors have expressed strong support for NCAA national office efforts to seek federal legislation that will regulate sports gambling. Ideally, there would be uniform practices applicable across states throughout the country governing gambling on college sports, particularly eliminating specific in-game betting and proposition bets on college sports. As I stated last year, it may be ideal for us not to experience any expansion in sports gambling. What is needed now is for our state and federal legislative leaders to enact policies, oversight, and to fund enforcement of those policies and laws to make sure we are protecting the integrity of our games and supporting properly our student-athletes and the students even on our campus. With those those observations in mind, let me just identify emerging reality between sports gambling and mental health. A reward for participating in college sports is to challenge oneself on a campus athletically and academically and to deal with the pressures present in the competitive environment. Yet we're seeing trends in the mental health area that should cause us all to pause before these ideas around specific event betting within college sports are allowed to take place. And I'm talking about for example, whether a field goal is made or missed, whether a three-point try is successful, is, is a pitch ball a strike or a ball. That pause should happen before any of these types of activities take place because if you were part of a student-athlete advisory committee meeting in the SEC 10 years ago, you would have commonly discussed campus parking issues and answering the question, why do I have to return my textbooks at the end of the semester? Now, at every meeting, our student athletes themselves ask to discuss issues around mental health. They share their stories, the stories of their colleagues, both those on their team, those within the conference, and those outside the conference. The perspectives on mental health represent not a ripple of change, but a wave of new reality which faces all of us in intercollegiate athletics and in higher education. NBA commissioner Adam Silver identified it at an even higher competitive level when he spoke at MIT's Sloan Analytics Conference this spring. He observed that in sports, we're seeing something that's really part of a larger societal issue. His quote was this. I don't think it's unique to these players. I don't think it's something that's just going on around superstar athletes. I think it's a generational issue." End of quote. San Diego State University psycho- psychology professor, Gene Twenge, who's one of the world's leading experts on general- generational differences in American youth, said this, quote, "'It's not an exaggeration to describe iGen or Generation Z as being on the brink of the worst mental health crisis in decades." It's the end of her quote. You know, those remarks are sobering, not just for student-athletes, but for young people as they go from adolescence to adulthood. In January, the five autonomy conferences adopted new minimum requirements for provision of mental health counseling to our student-athletes. I'm pleased to say that for the Southeastern Conference, we meet or exceed those requirements. But at the end of June this year, we asked our student-athletes during our leadership forum, student athletes from every one of our sports. We ask them for their input on campus mental wellness support, what's working, what programs overall are offered, and what ideas they have on how the Southeastern Conference Office can better support them and their teammates. Moving forward, just as we support academic counselors through collaboration, Through communication and through sharing recommendations, the same with our sports medicine directors, our mental health counselors will be brought in as part of the conversation within the conference to determine how best in moving forward we support the student-athletes of the Southeastern Conference. Our student-athlete leadership groups, as you can imagine, also engage in dialogue about issues related to name, image, and likeness, but more specifically, compensation issues in the financial support provided to student athletes. They noticed in May when the NCA announced a working group to look at federal and state legislative initiatives happening around this NIL concept. If you've studied any of this, you know the NCA's timeline is quick for an issue that's been percolating for years. We operate in a world that changes frequently. In fact, probably all of us have observed The world is changing more frequently now than ever before, but the reality is that change is a constant. What's also a constant is the need to identify informed, relevant principles to guide decision-making. As is everyone in intercollegiate athletics, we're interested in contributing to and hearing from the NCAA's working group to monitor the governmental activity at the state and federal level and to properly represent our position in existing litigation. As it relates to change in attention, the sports officiating environment may be at the top of that list. We know there's an ongoing need for self-examination, and so last September, in the SEC office, we began an intentional effort to look closely at how we best support our officiating programs, particularly in the sport of football. I shared at our spring meetings, that we had spent much of the spring working with Deloitte Consulting's advisory practice when they were engaged in a, conducting an external review of our football officiating program. This was not triggered by a game or a play or a series of issues. What I told our coaches in February is, just like them, I never want us to be complacent. But I'm interested continually in how we improve. So we asked Deloitte, as part of their external review to conduct three specific tasks. One, to conduct interview stakeholders, uh, stakeholder interviews. Strike that, reverse it for those of you who are Willy Wonka fans. Stakeholder interviews, to conduct stakeholder interviews. They did so with our 14 head football coaches, our 14 athletics directors, a group of football officials, and a group of former student-athlete, Athletes and former SEC had football coaches. The second thing we asked was for them to perform data analytics using game reports and our officiating performance reviews. And the third part was to compare our policies against those of other sporting entities, both domestic and international. Here's what we've learned so far. When our policies and procedures were compared with others, we compared favorably. You'll hear in a moment about some adjustments we learned may be helpful. The feedback from those interviewed indicates SEC officials are perceived to better manage the game when compared to their peers. Third, our coaches, athletics directors, and our officials express trust and confidence that the leadership of the SEC office is committed to supporting the highest quality officiating program. Next, there's an open line of communication between the SEC's coordinator of football officials, Steve Shaw and our head coaches, something for which our head coaches are appreciative and they respect Steve's responsiveness. Steve's approach and his, scheduling of, his schedule of providing weekly officiating evaluation feedback is helpful to and trusted by our head football coaches. The collaborative replay process speeds up decision making and produces more correct outcomes in which our membership has expressed confidence. In fact, Our replay process operates on each play 10 seconds faster than the national average and produces more correct outcomes than the old in-stadium process. We also learned something interesting, and that is both our head coaches and our officials want to improve their working relationships. As a result of the feedback, one of the first adjustments we made was to invite a group of referees, our White Hats, to Destin to spend time in a a facilitated conversation with our head football coaches, to hear each side's view of challenges and the realities before, during, and after football games. We will do the same thing in a different format with with those groups next spring. We are adding to our collaborative replay process a sideline monitor that will allow the on-field football officials to view the play and communicate with the in-stadium replay booth and the replay officials in the conference's video center. One of the benefits, in addition to the extra voice in the process, will be the ability to better explain replay decisions from the official to our head coaches on the field. In August, our officiating crews will, will travel across the conference for a two day camp during preseason practice involving each of our teams. We're obviously sending different officiating groups to different campuses. During those two days, they'll participate in position meetings, engage in on-field practices, discuss rules and techniques with coaches and student athletes to improve the understanding of football rules and officiating mechanics and foster that communication. We've also added to the number of outside officiating evaluators. During the year, behind the scenes, 20,000 football plays, every play of the season are reviewed by film graders, there are 20, some of whom are specialists at each position filled by an official. Those inform our grading system. Each of those evaluators have officiated at the highest level of college football and many have NFL officiating experience, including playoff experience. For years, the Southeastern Conference has maintained a clear policy governing potential conflicts of interest involving game officials. We are finalizing updates to this policy which will be made available and communicated publicly in August. We also learned how much data is compiled around officiating. Because of that, we also learned we need to do more in the area of analysis, particularly, if you will, segmented analysis, and not just in football officiating. And We'll be adding to our staff and using outside resources for what is commonly known as the analytics area. In the area of communicating with and through the media, there is a new reality put upon us, and that is we have officiating experts who now have been invited into the broadcast, broadcast booth to share their opinions. During game broadcasts, commentary will, from time to time, focus extensively on officiating decisions and communicate opinions, whether those opinions are right or wrong, and social media provides a platform for often ill-informed judgments around officiating. Some of our new communication strategies have already been apparent. For example, we have invited members of the media, some of you in this room, to participate as officials in spring football games to understand the realities of officiating the game of football. You'll hear from Steve Shaw twice this week. Tomorrow afternoon he will talk about rules changes and points of emphasis. We've added a session on Wednesday where Steve will talk about how our football officials are recruited, trained, evaluated, and the conference's accountability process for its officiating program along with the you make the call and accountability b- built in for each of you participating. In conjunction with the SEC Network, we expect and are exploring strategies to inform viewers about officiating decisions and to educate throughout the day, game day, through this platform. We're launching a website today, secsports.com officiating. It is lightly populated at the moment, but we will add educational videos, rules information, and some of the policies that I just referenced that are being updated. We'll do that across the board for our sports. We're also exploring opportunities to be more engaged and active on social media. That does not mean we will spend all day Saturday tweeting about other people's officials, nor about ours, but we do recognize there are opportunities to engage and explain in ways we haven't previously uh, explored. I have great confidence, and the SEC membership through our process has expressed great confidence in the leadership of Steve Shaw, who is respected nationally, which is why Steve was named the NCAA's uh, football rules secretary editor. But the reality is football is an incredibly dynamic game played at high rates of speed, which demands instant decision making. We have honorable people filling the SEC's officiating roster, people who approach their work with the highest degree of integrity, and the highest commitment to fairly officiate each and every game, yet officials, just like coaches and players, are human, and our elusive goal of perfection will remain elusive. Yet, we're not gonna become complacent, and we'll continue to seek this effort this expectation of perfection through constant improvement. Changes and change fill our days. There's a lot going on. I know you're ready to ask me questions. There are a few more points that I want to share, a few more thoughts, some of them about the continuing success we achieve and enjoy in this great conference. In 2018-19, the Southeastern Conference graduated 71,000 students from our campuses an enormous impact on our region, the nation, and the world. We had 61 teams earn public recognition awards from the NCA for their academic progress rate and 57 teams have perfect APR scores of 1,000. That's continuing progress academically. We celebrated Georgia's Katira Orji, who was named the NCAA's Woman of the Year. We led the nation and football attendance for the 21st consecutive year. We had half of the most highly viewed televised football games and again had the most highly viewed conference championship game filling completely Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta. We won five national championships this past year and finished second in national championship competition on five other occasions. We also had Over 2 million fans attend SEC baseball games, more than double the next highest conference. Having an SEC team finish like Vanderbilt did as national champions is a nice way to move into summer, summer being defined as the 18 days between game three of the College World Series and today. But it also reminds us of the opportunity to better support baseball, softball and other sports in two key areas. As you know, the SEC submitted a legislative proposal proposal to the NCAA to facilitate transition of the baseball volunteer coach role to one of a full-time coach. No one who opposed the SEC's proposed legislation observed that four coaches in baseball or softball, a head coach, two assistants, and the volunteer, no one observed that that's too many coaches. In fact, if the number of coaches is correct, why do we maintain a structure like this? It's time for change to this rule, and in another area, that of equivalency scholarships, our athletics directors and senior women administrators, and a rule that affects baseball, softball, track and field, and any number of sports, have started a deep exploration as to the whys and the history and what new options may be available for us in the future in providing scholarships to student athletes. We expect to provide information and a perspective to the NCAA during the next academic year. Through all of that and all the other activity that occurs through the year, I am confident still the best days of this conference, the Southeastern Conference, are ahead. And as is our tradition, we're going to ask Kevin to come to the stage and he's going to manage our question and answer ses- session.
1: Thank you, Commissioner. We have time for a couple of questions. We've got Amanda, Jordan, and Sarah. So if you have a question, please raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you. Okay, we'll start right down here at the front uh, with Parrish. Parrish, all for Daily Journal and Tupelo. Greg, can you tell me a little bit about where you are with MSU and Ole Miss ADs relative to the fighting in the Egg Bowl. Have y'all met how many times and where, please?
0: Actually, it wasn't defined as fighting as you remember. It was flagrant personal fouls, just to be technical on the rule. And there is a difference. Yes, Ross, uh, John and I had uh, a really healthy conversation in early May at a meeting of our athletics directors. We took some time at the end of one day both shared their perspectives, both concerns and ideas for how we can move through football games without that type of uh, negative activity. Uh, We've obviously had a change in the Athletics Director Ole Miss. Keith and I have talked and I I think we've had what I would describe as healthy conversations with the focus always being to move through these contests without those types of conflicts.
1: Okay, we have one over here in the middle, about three-quarters of the way back we will get the microphone to you. Just if you please stand, give your name and affiliation, please.
0: Hang on one second, Wayne. We got a microphone coming right to you. There you go. What
1: is Steve Shaw's title and exactly what does he do?
0: <laughs> Steve Shaw's title is coordinator of football officials. He's also the secretary editor of NCAA football rules. Um, and you'll learn from Steve on Wednesday the activity in which he spends his time. I will note that if you go to the website I just shared, I think we're posting what is our uh, in-season weekly work structure and our out-of-season annual work structure. Uh, But he's incredibly active, as you can imagine, Uh, from this time until after bowl games. It's essentially a -a seven-day-a-week job, and, and that is around education, development, instruction oversight, communication, uh, all aspects, and he has the responsibility for overseeing the entirety of our football officiating program and does it very well.
1: Commissioner, we'll go down here at the front left. Commissioner, Dale Williams, Sports Visions. Uh, have there any, been any more discussions on conference
0: realignment? Not unless I'm asked in a press conference. My, my answer was there was a time where he said it was on the back burner uh earlier in June I said it's up in the cupboard someplace in the kitchen. Okay, we'll go back over here to the left side, Mike. Mike Bianchi, Orlando Sentinel uh Commissioner, can you uh Florida Miami open up the season uh in Orlando? Can you just address address the exposure that's going to be on that game as as we begin the 150th year of college football? Mike, you identified it was part of the effort to increase the focus around the 150th anniversary celebration. In the state of Florida, it'll be great focus on on those two great universities. I obviously have a rooting interest. I look forward to being in Florida. Uh, You know, what's interesting is uh, I think it's it's great Uh, from a standpoint of being able to feature on almost a standalone Saturday. I think there are a handful of other games, uh, a great matchup, an in-state matchup like uh, Florida and the University of Miami. Um, we did go through this process and looking at starting even earlier. We had a, a working group at the NCA level look at that and, and suggest not starting on what's commonly known as week zero. So it's unique, but I think it's a tribute to the, the game we're talking about and the opportunity to begin uh, with a with a feature matchup, the 150th anniversary, the 150th season of college football.
1: Okay, we'll take two more. We'll start in the back on the right hand side.
0: Hi, Greg Brendan. We see KTRS Radio in St. Louis. I'm curious if you're providing any assistance to Mizzou in their appeals process of the NCAA sanctions, and two, what kind of precedent do you think it sets if these sanctions are allowed to stand? To the the first question, whenever any of our uh, universities, athletics programs are involved in an NCAA infractions process, we, we serve in an advisory role. We are not investigators, that is now uh, a 15-year approach by our conference and uh, William King, our associate commissioner, and myself even have been in communication uh, throughout the infractions process and even the appeals preparation process, process with Missouri and its representatives. And That's common among any of our institutions when they have those problems. You know, I'm always reserved in comment about decisions, uh, but uh, the infractions appeals committee certainly has an opportunity, it appears. And I'll leave it at that.
1: Okay, we'll go back over here on the left side, alongside the wall. Thank you. There you go. Hey, Commissioner Shock, do say WAFB TV in Baton Rouge. I'm just curious your thoughts on targeting calls and players having to miss entire halves sometimes when it appears they're just trying to make good, clean hits. The Devin
0: White call last year obviously was very controversial. Just your thoughts on, you know, where that's heading. I hadn't heard about that controversy. When targeting was initiated as a rule, it was about protecting the players in the game. That's still the case. The reality of targeting, it is a well-intended rule that is difficult to officiate and controversial even when applied correctly, which we communicated on that play. It was in fact, by rule, uh, applied correctly. That doesn't mean it's not controversial. Uh, i 'm encouraged by the willingness to update the rule this year because we had one of these conflicts it seemed where the charge to the official on the field is when in doubt, you put the flag down. The responsibility of a video review official is you have to have a clear evidence to overturn that it wasn 't something or that it was, and so we 're in this gray area. Uh, and Steve will talk more about this tomorrow, you had this reality where it, it stood or it may have been confirmed even in some occasions. Now we go to video review in the coming season to say all three parts under the new approach, the new rule, all three parts of targeting must be present for the rule to be applied. And that will produce outcomes different from past years. It will still be controversial. But fundamentally, we have to understand, this is about protecting the participants in the game. You asked about the penalty. If we could change behaviors without penalties, I'm sure we would, but we have different types of penalties for all kinds of behaviors, and that's a particularly dangerous play, which merits that severe accountability. Uh, Kevin tells me I'm done, right? Yes, sir. Okay, he has the clock. Uh, So there is a lot to communicate. There probably are still a lot of remaining questions I will be around throughout the day today, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and look forward to the conversations and uh, whatever questions you may have that I may be able to answer or successfully deflect to someone else.